Minas Gerais. Minas Gerais. Minas Gerais. This is Hyperallergic, the podcast, and I'm Harag Vartanian. Yes, that's right. I had never heard of Minas Gerais before. But believe it or not, it's home to one of the largest open-air contemporary art collections in the world, and it's celebrating its 10th anniversary. Brazil's going through one of the worst economic crises it's ever faced in its history, and we're going to talk a little bit about how it affects the sculpture park in Yochin. But a little later, we're also going to speak about some really positive news from Brazil, specifically its great, rich musical tradition, and specific the movement of Tropicalia, which right now is having a little bit of a revival in the art world around the world. I'm going to introduce our executive producer, Gisele Rigatau, who is Brazilian and was kind enough to go down to uh, Brazil to check out Inyochin. That's right. I made the sacrifice, Rag. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure it was really difficult. So tell me about this. This sounds so incredible. How is it that this giant collection isn't very well known outside of South America? Yeah, it is located in the middle of the country, close to the city of Belo Horizonte. And that's the capital of the state of Minas Gerais, which, you know, you're struggling to pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> Minas Gerais, that area of Brazil, is a center of mining industry. And Inyotin started because this mining uh, magnet, his name is Bernardo Paz, he is basically the visionary behind this whole idea. Ten years ago, he decided he would create this contemporary art center and botanic garden in Brumadinho, in this little town. And that's what he did. And so what is it like when you're walking there? Is it, is it very far away from other cities? Is it, are you walking into a giant park or does it look more like a museum? I mean, how, how would you describe it? Yeah, it's far. You have to drive an hour and a half from the city, Belo Horizonte. And yes, you enter basically like a paradise, almost. It's a beautiful place. Roberto Buller Marx, the late famous Brazilian landscape designer, he was friends with Bernardo Paz, the founder of Inhotim. And he's the one who kind of envisioned the park from the beginning. Since several other designers and architects have contributed to the park, and actually one of them sued the park in 2012 to get credit for his work, he claimed Inyotin was just giving credit to Burler Marx, and they have since changed the language to say Burler Marx has served as an inspiration for the park. But that's a subject for another podcast. Anyway... It has about 4,000 plants, Rag, and 700 art pieces that are in exhibition. The entire collection is about 1,300 pieces. And what is interesting about how it's presented, it's not like a sculpture arts park like Storm King in upstate New York. What they did is actually they created a collection of galleries that present the work of different artists. So if you go and visit one of the galleries, what you are getting is several pieces by one artist in particular. That sounds amazing. But unfortunately, the sculpture park isn't immune to the economic crisis, yes. it sounds like. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the model of Inyotin is, so Bernardo Paz is the one who started it, and his company is still one of the biggest funders of the park. Of their budget, about 20% comes from private donations, and most of that from Bernardo Paz companies themselves. 
but about another 50% comes from donations through an incentive that Brazil has. Basically, Brazil created this law that gives companies incentive to donate to cultural institutions. But as you can imagine, during an economic crisis, when their revenues are down, their donations are also going to go down. Of course. And I mean, Brazil's been doing a lot of incentivizing of culture. Even with people, they've been sort of offering tax credits and different things. So it's really interesting, very different from the model we see here. Yes. Um, but they've also laid off 400 employees. Yes. Last year, they laid off about 400 people, and now they have about 700 employees. Their budget is about 42 million reais, so you understand that's about 13 million dollars. But I asked Bernardo specifically about the crisis, and what he told me is that he believes now Inyotin is much stronger. Inyotin has stronger muscles for being recognized by places like the United Nations and UNESCO. And we have partnerships with the Inter-American Development Bank, with the Association of Development of Spain. Inyochin is now an international place, known in all continents and also known as a perspective for the future. That all translates as a state of spirit, and state of spirit is something that doesn't end. And also, Rag, Inyoting is now going to have the first exhibit outside of Brazil in Washington, D.C. in July of next year. And it's going to be in partnership with the Inter-American Development Bank. So that might be the start of an international expansion. The story of the park is very interesting, but I'm really wondering why it's not in Rio or Sao Paulo or some of the other major art hubs in Brazil. Yeah, no, Bernardo Paz felt strongly about creating the park where it is because he wanted a place that would basically make people connect to nature. And he has a very interesting perspective. I spent about an hour and a half talking to him. Um, and I would say he's like a mix of a philosopher and uh, <laughs> he's a businessman and he's a visionary um, and he has opinions about anything you can imagine. He told me that he first thought business is what would help Brazil go forward. But he has since changed his mind, and now he thinks capitalism is doomed. Here's what he thinks about conventional museums. We have started to decree, not for now, but for the next 30 years, the death of the museums, which are like boxes buried in big cities. These boxes receive a large number of visitors, naturally but they only spend about 20 or 30 minutes looking at something. And then they leave because they can't stand it even for an hour. Their legs start hurting, and they lose interest in the art. And I discovered that when you were born, even if you were born in New York City, probably your first drawing will be of a house, a sun, and a mountain. That is part of the collective consciousness. I mean, what Inyochin represents is a bit of the basic principles of a child to understand life. And these basic principles remain with us our whole lives. He sounds like quite a character and he has a lot of really strong ideas. Can you tell us a little bit more about them? Yeah, he considers himself a rebel, Rag. He carries a beard and a long hair. Uh, he lives in Inyotin with his sixth wife. He has seven kids. And he actually told me he believes that masses will take the world through social media and that all of us will move away from cities, that cities will no longer make sense. 
He believes that art will remain fundamental, though, and especially contemporary art. Art has changed from being beautiful to being smart. These artists are admirable because they force you to think about what life is in reality. I'd love to believe that. This sounds really invigorating. But can you also give us a sense of who some of the artists are we would see at Inyochin? Mm -hmm. There are several famous Brazilian artists like Elio Oiticica, Adriana Varejão, Silvio Meirelles, Tunga, uh, who died earlier this year. There are also some famous international artists like Yoyo Kusama, Olafur Eliasson, Larry Clark. And as I said, they are in this, there are 19 permanent galleries and they are dedicated to different artists and they're also designed rag right, to integrate with the outside space so sometimes especially like the tunga gallery i thought it was really beautiful mm -hmm. and it's large and it's uh, surrounded by glass so as you're looking at his work you're also looking at nature outside sounds like an idyllic spot mm -hmm. and it also has a new york con connection because the chief curator alan schwartzman's from here right yes and he works with Jochen volts who is also the curator of the sao paulo biennial and there's a new curator, a young Portuguese curator, who comes from the Museum of Modern Art of Rio. She joined Inyotin in March. So, so they work, kind of work together. So it has all the credentials of this sort of art world pedigree too. Yes. So it's kind of amazing, this, this project. In terms of uh, Bernardo's thinking about the art world in Brazil, what's mm -hmm. his vision of it? Why, where, where does he see art in Brazil going? Yeah, he is actually a big supporter of Brazilian artists and Brazilian art in particular. And he believes Brazil will have even a much larger role in the world of arts. Listen to him here. Our intellectuals and artists will have an important presence because we have more reasons to be artists and intellectuals than the Europeans have. Poverty, hunger, misery, the fight for power, the corruption, human tragedy in the favelas, religion, which is less problematic in Brazil, but it exists, all that. A country more or less mixed ethnically that brings more people from different perspectives to see things compared with whites in Europe, or whites and a few blacks in the United States, because they didn't have the mixing of races. So it's possible to have artists in Brazil, especially with the level of education we have today, compared to any artist in the U.S. or Europe. But the problem is the border separation of the countries that believe they are more developed. So how large is this park? This sounds like a massive endeavor. It is pretty big. It's interesting that it's been growing a lot because it has been very successful, very popular. It started with 32 acres and when it first opened in 2006, it now has 345. And wow. about 2.5 million people have visited the park so far. Only 15% of the visitors are foreigners. A lot of them, 40%, come from the state of Minas Gerais. That's impressive. They're really building a local, a local art audience. public. Mm -hmm. That's so amazing. Speaking of the local community, you spoke to the director of education at Inyochin. What did she have to say about what they're doing to reach all these people? Yeah, I spoke to Yara Castanheira. She's originally from the region, but she moved to Europe and worked in museums in Berlin and other European cities before she joined Inyochin. And she told me the local community is a key element of the park. We are very concerned about the relationship between the new team and the communities around. 
So I think through that we can open the minds of the people and use your team as a state of spirit, as Bernard used to say. And 80% of the people working at your team, they are from the area. So your team is the second biggest employer of the region. The biggest employer, I suppose, is the mining industry, right? This is a mining area of Brazil. And compared to the traditional jobs they had, it's a very different kind of job, right? To work here in a botanical and arts park. So what do you think is the role of Inyotin in terms of interacting with that community? It's like betting on diversity. It's like really living the diversity because we all talk too much about diversity. But living with the other, having the otherness just really close to you is something different. So you, you have to learn that. You have the, the aspect of contemporary and you have like these artists from all over the world. But then you have a very Brazilian thing. So sometimes people say, oh, it's better than Europe. It's not better, it's not, it's, it's here, it's Brazil. And I think when Bernardo had that in, in his mind, he thought, I have to do it here. But he had this intuition. So I think it's, it's a place which helps you to follow your heart in a way. But of course, behind that, every day is a bit chaotic and it's like full of activities. You don't really have time to breathe but then you're here and then you breathe again i mean it's a contradiction as life is thank you very much Muito obrigada. Well, you're welcome De nada. <laughs> that was our executive producer and editor giselle rigatao talking to yara castaneda head of education at indiochin a contemporary arts center and botanic garden in brazil Late landscape architect Roberto Burl Marx left an indelible mark on the Brazilian modernist landscape. At Hyperallergic, we're fortunate to have another member of our team who's Brazilian, editor Elisa Vok Almino. Hi, Elisa. Hi, Harag. Elisa, many people outside Brazil may not understand Burl Marx's history and also the context of his legacy. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so he's known for having designed these really gorgeous geometric parks and gardens. Most of them are in major Brazilian cities, and he constructed them around the middle 20th century, um, but also in other Latin American cities, and even here in the US, in Miami. It's a Biscayne Boulevard. Uh, some of his most famous projects are, of course, the Copacabana cobblestone sidewalks completed in 1970 that look like these rolling black and white waves. And around the same time, he also designed the gardens outside the Itamarachi Palace in Brasilia, the Brazilian capital, um, the Ministry of Foreign Relations Gardens. And in 1965, he inaugurated the Flamengo Park, also in Rio de Janeiro, that was actually built over a landfill. So a lot of these are really iconic images of these sort of vibrant, modernist Brazil. But what's so special about his designs? What really sets him apart? I think his landscape designs are really captivating for their almost painterly quality. Um, they have these very playful, colorful shapes. And he also loved to work with native flora, incorporating nature's designs into these modernist, abstract, and even cubist forms. And he actually did something that was very common among artists at the time, which was to combine folk art and local tastes with the trends of a broader international modernist movement. And it's an idea that stretches back to the early days of modernity in Brazil in the 1920s of 
anthropophagia or anthropophagy. Uh, the Brazilian modernists di digested the foreign and transformed it and then made it their own. Uh, they often called it a form of cannibalism. It's a term that's getting a lot of popularity nowadays because it's a really radical take on modernism that's so unlike a lot of the other modernisms we hear about. Yeah. But I also understand it was something that transformed Brazilian music too, right? Yeah, I actually think this idea is best expressed in Brazilian music, which I think is a useful lens uh, to consider the art being produced from the 1950s through the 70s in Brazil. So I wanted you to listen to this hrog. It's, it's a perfect example from the legendary Gilberto Gil. Uh, it's a version of the song Chiclete com Banana. Só ponho bebop no meu samba Quando tio san pega no tamborim Quando ele pegar o pandeiro e nos abumba Quando ele entender que o samba não é rumba E eu vou misturar Miami com Copacabana Chiclete se eu misturo com banana Chiclete com banana literally means bubblegum with banana. Uh, the song articulated for the first time this notion of samba rock in Brazilian music when musicians were looking to North American styles. But it's also come to embody how Brazilian music loves to mix many styles in general, whether that means reviving old traditions, mixing samba with jazz or samba with rock, hence the very unexpected pairing of bubblegum and banana. That sounds almost surrealist and very radical in this sort of juxtaposition. And this was in the late 50s, early 60s. But what was happening for those who may not know in Brazil then? The late 50s and early 60s was a very optimistic time in the country. Um, it culminated with the very famous utopian project of Brasilia, the capital built from scratch in the heart um, of the country in 1960. And even when the military dictatorship took over in 1964, artists continued to, to be very creative and some would even argue more creative as they had to devise ways to not get censored. Th these were also the early years of the dictatorship when it was less severe. It's also really notable for a lot of people who probably have seen some of the recent international pop art shows. Brazilian pop art was very political and engaged in a way that we weren't accustomed to in mm -hmm. the United States and in North America. Just wanted to put yeah, that out yeah, there yeah, for definitely. some of the people who may not know. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's good to keep in mind, too, that a lot of these artists that I'm discussing were young and urban and very educated. And together they banded into what's become known as the Tropicalia movement, which really pushed this idea of digesting foreign influences while embracing the country's roots. Famously, Caetano Veloso, the musician, named his 1968 Tropicalia was very transformative in Brazilian music. What was its impact on visual arts at the time? Yeah, so Tropicalia is mostly associated with music, but the term Tropicalia was actually coined by the visual artist Eloitisica, who made up the word in a title to one of his large-scale installations where you can walk on sand and are surrounded by these very bright planes of color. And I actually think there's something very central and musical about the visual art being made during this time. And their contemporaries in the U.S. at this time would be people like the minimalists. But 
of course, they're very different from the minimalists in the U.S. Yeah, very, very different. I mean, they were exploring a similar abstract language, but but it had a much more central edge to it, not so cold. They were known as the neo-concrete artists. They wanted their work to be experienced, touched, and sometimes even danced with. Uh, Elio Chisica famously made his parangoles, these colorful cape-like outfits made from recycled materials that were worn while dancing samba. And uh, Lija Clark made her metal contraptions known as bichus, or little critters that were manipulated by the viewer. It seems to me that we're seeing a lot more art from Brazil right now. Is that right? Um, yeah, especially of that time period. There was the Lija Clark exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in New York very recently, as well as Mira Schendel at the Tate in London. And soon there will be an Eloy Chisica retrospective at the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh. Um, but, but even recently at the Olympics, we saw many references to this time of, of optimism, this very creative time in the country. Uh, the opening ceremony played Don Jobim's Garota de Panema, or Girl from Ipanema. And in the closing ceremony, dancers formed these colorful designs alluding to Berlin Marx's gardens in Rio. Of course, the Olympics wanted to sell a very optimistic view of Brazil, but also these songs and visuals have become a very important part of Brazilian identity, particularly the identity of Rio de Janeiro. The neo-concrete artists were from there, and while many of the musicians hailed from the Northeast, they mostly settled in Rio, the home of samba and bossa nova. Contemporary artists, of course, are always resilient, but I'm kind of curious how they're reacting to the situation now, because, of course, the headlines we're seeing seem to be more and more dire every day. Yeah, the artists have been really banding together, uh, protesting the government, calling Juma's impeachment trials a coup, releasing statements, writing letters and videos. And the Ministry of Culture was actually temporarily shut down a few months ago, also causing outcry with artists occupying its various branches throughout the country. Caetano Veloso, the musician, also said he's been reminded of the 60s in the ways artists and people in general have been protesting the political climate. Right now, it might be worth looking back on that time of optimism and creativity uh, that outlasted what's been considered until now some of the country's darker years. And I thought I would end with Aquele Abraço, or that hug, or that embrace, composed by Gilberto Gil when he returned to Brazil after living in exile. Uh, the song is an ode to Rio de Janeiro, but also an act of forgiveness. He greets the prison where he was imprisoned during the dictatorship and admires the city that in his eyes is still beautiful. O Rio de Janeiro continua lindo O Rio de Janeiro continua sendo O Rio de Janeiro, fevereiro e março Alô, alô, realê Obrigado, Elisa. Obrigada, Harag. So that was Elisa Volcalmino, an editor at Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening to this episode where we traveled to Brazil and got a little taste of the musical tradition as well as the fantastic Inyochin Sculpture Park. 
I'm Harag Vartanian. I'm editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Our executive producer and editor is Giselle Rigatau. Our publisher is Vika Ngeikian. Garen Ngeikian did the theme music for the show. You can subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and we'll see you next episode.